like to welcome you all today to IWP's 2018 Student Symposium, our annual showcase of research papers that students have worked on during their time here at IWP. The goal of this event is to provide students with the opportunity to present a research paper as well as an environment in which IWP students may engage with and respond to audience members. Today, four students will have 25 minutes in which they will present their research and conduct a short Q&A session. Today, I am also delighted to begin this event by introducing our first speaker, Eric Kosmalian, who is an MA candidate here as in the Statecraft and National Security Affairs program with an emphasis on public diplomacy and strategic influence here at the IWP. Prior to his enrollment here, Mr. Kosmalian worked on Capitol Hill and later transitioned to a DC-based political consulting firm. Currently, Mr. Kosmalian is a student as a senior fellow at the Eurasian Research and Anal Research and Analysis Institute, where he performs analysis on the geopolitical developments of Eurasia and directs the Institute's podcast project. He holds a BA from, uh, in political science from Southwest Minnesota State University, and his paper is entitled Russia's Pacific Fleet, History, Strategy, and Attempts for Revival. It was written for his military strategy class, and the chief objective was to understand the role of the Russian Pacific Navy in light of growing U.S.-China naval contention in the Asia-Pacific region. The paper examines Russia's Pacific Fleet strategy during the Tsarist and Soviet periods, as well as its shedding light on modern-day strategy and whether the rapprochement with China will create a conundrum that the United States will have to counter. So please welcome Mr. Eric Kosmetic. Great to see you all. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, so it goes almost unquestioned that the great power politics is back and uh, the role of national navies will continue to grow. Uh, fortunately, the United States Navy will be the mightiest and most powerful uh, navy in the uh, foreseeable future. However, other nations will make uh, great efforts uh, to remain relevant and, uh, of course, China and Russia come to mind. It is estimated that by 2020, thank you. By 2020, uh, China will overpass Russia with its uh, naval capabilities, and assuming that all variables remain the same, by 2030, China will become a two-ocean navy, therefore establishing itself as a prime uh, blue, uh, blue water navy. So my objective was to understand the role of uh, Russian fleet moving forward. Uh, what kind of Asia-Pacific Russia envisions. And to understand, uh, it, it is almost impossible to understand uh, the Russian vision of Asia-Pacific without understanding the strategy of the Pacific fleet, because these two are mutually inclusive. So let's get started. All right, so Russia's entrance into Pacific uh, begins with the creation of seaport, uh, seaport in uh, Okhotsk in 1647. Originally, this was a private initiative, later it got institutionalized by uh, Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan Grozny in Russian, and later by Regent Boris Godunov. Russians had two primary objectives, gain access to regions rich resources, and establish important maritime routes to initiate trade for, uh, with foreign countries. Well, obviously, the neighboring countries in Far East uh, rang the alarm bells, and China was the first to respond. And with a successful military threat, the Chinese rolled back the first major progress of the Russian expansion towards uh, the Far East. And uh, they forced Russians to uh, sign the uh, Treaty of Nerchinsk in 1689. This was the first major blow to Russia's specific aspirations. 
And Russians realized that in order to sustain their economic and geopolitical gains, they need to improve their naval and military presence in the region. Uh, therefore, the Ahotsk seaport was granted a military status in 1731. Uh, moreover, uh, the openings uh, of Chukotka and Kamchatka further exacerbated the need for a major naval buildup. And uh, this major naval buildup was uh, coupled with Russian settlement and uh, it eventually led to the creation of Petropavlovsk-Kamchatsky seaport, which till today is a major strategic point for Russian Pacific fleet. This was a major step for Russia as it uh, gained access to open ocean, eventually brought Alaska, Sakhalin and Kuril Islands under its control. At this point, the Chinese were not able to contain Russian expansion, but you always had the Royal Navy, and uh, the, the Brits dispatched a few warships, and just by showing flags, they uh, successfully recovered the balance of power in the region. This motivated Nikolai Muravyov, who at the time was the governor of Eastern Siberia, and later founded the city of Vladivostok. I'll come back to him. He wrote a letter to St. Petersburg, urging that in order for Russia to remain a relevant actor in Asia-Pacific, there has to be a more concentrated effort towards uh, uh, making a, a, a powerful navy in the region. Given the exigency of his report, St. Petersburg transferred a few warships to uh, Asia-Pacific, and this is when Russia truly became, uh, became a relevant player in the region. Alright, so fast forward to Crimean War. So during this period, Russia continued its naval build-up and there were no major alterations to its Pacific uh, aspirations. Nonetheless, uh, the Crimean War was a major naval disaster for Russia because it engaged the entire country wherever it had access to water. Uh, the uh, Anglo-French uh, forces, naval forces, effectively paralyzed the Russians in the European arena and forced the Russia to sign the Treaty of Paris in 1856 which meant a massive naval reduction for Russia. Nonetheless, Russians were able to preserve the uh, Ahotsk flotilla and Petropavlovsk Kamchatsky. And uh, during this time, Russians uh, recorded several key achievements uh, during the war. The expedition led by Nikolai Muravyov continued uh, expanding towards the Far East, and they reached all the way to uh, Amur region. At this time, China was embroiled in domestic violence. You had the Taiping Rebellion, the bloodiest civil war in human history. Then you also had a few years later a second Anglo-Chinese war. So the Russians masterfully exploited on the, the circumstances on the, on the ground and forced the Chinese to transfer massive lands uh, to Russia. So if you take a look at the map, uh, the, uh, the red line that separates the yellow, uh, the green uh, area from. Uh, Yellow area, that's the Sino-Russian border before the Treaty of Nerchinsk. After the Treaty of Aigun, 1858, this whole yellow area was transferred to Russia by China, about 2 million square miles, and later on, two years later, the Treaty of Beijing was signed, which technically enforced the first treaty, but also transferred this massive, the purple area, to Russia. And you can see the, uh, the city of Vladivostok is in the southern uh, uh, tip of, the, of this new uh, gains territory. So this is one of the best uh, treaties Russia uh, was ever, uh, could ever sign. With this treaty, Russia gained access to warm waters of Sea of Japan, and this is when you have the, city, uh, the founding of the city of Vladivostok and uh, uh, the Pacific fleet. Vladivostok became the official headquarters of this new fleet. So, uh, fast forward to uh, Russo-Japanese War. So, while the Ru Russians were continuing their, their naval build-up, the Suez Canal was completed. 
For Russians, this was a great opportunity to improve their geostrategic position, uh, as they thought they could transfer warships from the Pacific arena to European arena, the Baltic Sea and uh, the Black Sea, and vice versa, in case of uh, uh, regional crisis. Uh, so they developed their theater to theater maneuver. Well, you don't have to be a naval expert to realize that this was a very flawed strategy because the Suez Canal was under the effective control of the Brits and there was no way they would allow Russians to transfer their ships so easily. And the Russians learned the lesson the hard way during the Russo-Japanese War. Admiral Rajetsky uh, at the time, the, who led this uh, expedition, the last moment he refused to tr transport the warships through Suez Canal, instead decided to go around the Cape of Good Hope. So he transferred uh, seven battleships, nine destroyers and seven cruisers from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific. Well, by the time this uh, fleet got there so to Northeast Asia, Japan effectively destroyed half of it. Russia's Pacific First Squadron was dismantled totally and the greatest loss of all, uh, Russia lost Port Ar Arthur, which was an ice-free um, port. This was uh, one of the darkest pages in Russia's naval history. So, before the Russo-Japanese War, Russian Navy uh, was the third largest after Britain, uh, France. And uh, prior to World War I, as the tensions with Japan were sort of uh, uh, come down, Russia uh, was able to pay much attention to the Pacific fleet, and before World War I, you had 18 destroyers, 12 submarines, and two cruisers in Pacific fleet. By 1914, uh, the Pacific fleet, uh, the Russian Navy was the fifth largest, as German and uh, American navies gained much naval capabilities. The World War I was unquestionably a big disaster for Russia. Again, uh, that was to the detriment of country's economy, and they were not able to support the navy. Uh, later, uh, Americans, Brits, and Japanese occupied the city of uh, Vladivostok to keep the supply uh, line open. Uh, however, Vladivostok finally fell into the hands of Bolsheviks and this marked the new beginning of Soviet uh, naval strategy. So let me just briefly talk about that. So, uh, once communists took over, they effectively brought navy under the control of Red Army. At this point, you had uh, two camps among communists uh, who were debating the new strategy of the Soviet navy. You had traditional school versus young school. So traditionals were advocating uh, for a fleet led by cruisers and battleships, and the new school represented, advocated for submarines, patrol boats, and destroyers. Two major takeaways from this uh, debate. So the traditionalists were accused of perpetuating the czarist old ideas, and uh, the, the new school technically backed up their argument that the country did not have enough funds to sponsor surface-level warships that would be able to sell the ships. So long story short, Russians uh, formulated their active defense strategy, which meant that they would keep the navy in uh, coastlines solely for uh, defensive purposes. When Stalin came to power, this was poised to change, and uh, that partially had to do with the rise of German, Italian, and Japanese navies. Also, uh, Stalin learned the lesson hard way during the Spanish Civil War. The Soviets were not able to effectively intervene in the Civil War because of uh, the weakness of uh, Soviet navy. Uh, therefore, before the outbreak of World War II, you had 200 vessels being uh, built around the, sea, uh, around the country, including 90 submarines, uh, 10 cruisers, and 45 uh, destroyers. Uh, during World War II, again, uh, the Russian Navy was not able to carry all the tasks that it was assigned to the European Navy, the Baltic Fleet and the uh, Black Sea Fleet. Most of the sailors ended up ashore fighting in Leningrad, so they didn't really uh, carry their missions. 
The Pacific Fleet uh, was primarily carried that deterrence role and was heavily activated during the last stage of war was, was Japan was about to fall. And it became clear to Soviet strategists that uh, the Navy was Army's junior partner and couldn't act independently. Seems like the Russians had read uh, Corvette. Uh, so, the uh, decision was made to sort of keep the Navy under the command of the Red Army. And I found this Soviet propaganda poster, which uh, says, uh, Stalin has raised us, so we can be faithful to our country. So, let me just... Before I get here, so, uh, I, I want to quickly mention something else. So. After World War II, uh, obviously, the uh, Anglo-American uh, naval forces dominated the global waters. And uh, per the recommendation of the Soviet naval staff, Stalin approved a 10-year plan, which opted for creating a couple hundred warships, including 360 submarines and 160 destroyers. Originally, this 10-year plan was uh, geared towards enhancing the Soviet Navy as a whole. But as the Korean War broke out, uh, Stalin increasingly shifted this 10-year uh, uh, plan towards enhancing the uh, Pacific fleet. It became clear to Stalin that the reason that uh, the United States was so easily intervened in regional uh, conflicts was because of the unchallenged power of American Navy. I hate to say anything uh, positive of what Stalin did, but the 10-year plan did really produce some major results uh, towards the end, around 1955. The Soviet Navy outmatched the uh, Royal Navy and posed a significant threat to the United States. So after Stalin's death, uh, Khrushchev comes to power. And uh, this guy had a natural disdain for a blue water navy. Uh, he believed that uh, no, uh, surface level warships were redundant because all the missions they carried out, uh, they could be carried out by uh, submarines as well. Also, he was increasingly fascinated by the growing quality of missiles. So the first thing he did when he came to power, he dismantled the uh, Ministry of Navy, Soviet Ministry of Navy, and fired Captain-in-Chief uh, Admiral Kuznetsov because he entertained blue water aspirations. Uh, ironically, he appointed uh, Admiral Garshkov, who would, be, who would become later, later would become uh, the icon of Soviet Navy, who truly elevated the Soviet Navy to its glory. Uh, so after Khrushchev was dismissed, that was uh, sort of a manat from heaven to Gashkov because he was able to carry out his mission. Uh, and uh, Brezhnev, unlike Khrushchev, he was actually uh, he didn't intervene in naval affairs, listened to naval experts of what they had to say. And uh, Brezhnev's reign coincided with the third phase of post-World War II naval development of the Soviet Navy from 1967 till 86. And this is the time when the Soviet Navy became an overwhelming force, the Pacific Fleet in particular. And uh, the Russians formulated their combat service uh, strategy, which meant anti-submarine warfare against American SSBNs, monitoring carrier battle groups, enforcing Soviet posture in high seas, counter-American naval might by denying access into the regional conflict zones, contain China and Japan. So you can see how this uh, strategy of the Pacific Fleet evolved from more mostly defensive strategy to more active uh, and uh, forward-leaning uh, uh, mission-oriented uh, Navy. Also, this period marked the rise of the Soviet Merchant Fleet. About 125 countries were periodically visited by uh, Soviet merchants. Uh, in 1985, Gashkov retired, and he was replaced by Admiral Chernavid. Well, Chernobyl uh, inherited this massive navy, but he also inherited the Kremlin's rigid mindset of submarine-oriented warfare. 
Uh, and uh, at that point, the Kremlin continued only funding the submarines, so uh, surface-level warships were pushed to second plan. And also, uh, Chernobyl's reign uh, coincided with uh, Gorbachev's um, threat-reduced approach, which called all Navy to littoral zones and uh, articulated that Navy should be there only for uh, defense of Russia's uh, coastlines. So before I uh, get to post-Cold War uh, Russian Navy, let me just briefly talk about the naval exercises and uh, traditional operations of the Pacific Fleet. So Russians uh, generally uh, uh, justify their massive naval exercises by claiming that it's simply a response to enemy's naval exercises. Obviously, it's a method of power projection, working up newly deployed units. And the most uh, prominent exercise of the Pacific Fleet took place in 1975 under the codename Visna, which in Russian means spring. Uh, about 220 warships participated globally. 30% of these warships were deployed to the Pacific. This was due to the uh, possible USSR-China war. From 1982 till 1988, 14 major naval exercises were conducted in Sea of Okhotsk, Sea of Japan, Bering Sea, and South China Sea. Uh, pretty aggressive in, in nature. And Derek Dacuna, based on these uh, naval exercises, laid down the primary missions of the Pacific Fleet. A. Defense of the Sea of Okhotsk, which still is the primary mission of the Pacific Fleet. Anti-carrier warfare, amphibious warfare, uh, anti-slog exercise, control command communication exercise, and carrier uh, battle group exercise. Like I mentioned, the most important mission of the Pacific Fleet is to uh, defend the Sea of Okhotsk. The reason is that, that Petropavlovsk Kamchatsky has a major, huge uh, submarine base, and in case of war, these guys would be the first one to be activated. And it was actually generally uh, anticipated that had the war erupted between the Soviet Union and uh, the United States, uh, the Pacific Fleet's Petropavlovsk Kamchatsky would be the first one of the first to respond. All right, so uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union obviously changed all the global uh, calculations, and uh, to be uh, frank, uh, Navy truly became a burden for Russia due to lack of uh, funds. Uh, and in 1997, Yeltsin adopted the secure national security concept, which dramatically toned down its enmity against the West. This was a particular challenge to the Navy, because Navy's whole concept was formulated along the lines of the Cold War, denying access to American ships, harassing NATO's warships, so Navy kind of lost its purpose. Uh, also, uh, during the first Chechnya war, the Navy proved to be incredibly useless. And uh, Yeltsin refused to enact any uh, major reforms. However, he, forced, he was forced to uh, make some changes, otherwise the Navy would simply sink. Uh, so uh, the Minister of the Defense at the time, uh, Marshal Sergeyev, uh, he appointed Admiral Kurayedov to enact these changes, and they adopt, adopted the preservation to reduction approach, meaning they got rid of their huge arsenal and kept those that they were able to manage. Uh, the Russian Pacific Fleet uh, would consist of mixed flotillas. They eliminated the entire squadron and uh, got rid of ground troops. About 10,000 people were affected by these changes. Some of them lost their jobs, uh, others uh, simply were restationed. Uh, things slightly changed when uh, Vladimir Putin came to power. In 1997, when he chaired the uh, Security Council, Russia's Security Council, he openly claimed that Russia cannot be uh, a great power with, uh, without a navy. And traditionally speaking, Putin has had a really good relations with the Russian navy. 
Uh, and in, uh, moreover, in 2000, as a president, he uh, participated in naval exercises uh, conducted by the Northern Fleet, and he spent the night uh, aboard Delta IV SSBN. This was sort of a message that uh, Russia from now on will, will be paying much attention to Navy. Uh, also in 2001, Russians adopted their maritime doctrine, which called for defending Russia's interest in world ocean, uh, defending Russia's economic zones and coastlines. Uh, as of 2012, the Russia's Pacific Fleet had uh, four SSBNs, 11 SSNs, one cruiser, well, seven destroyers, 10 frigates, uh, 14 corvettes, eight mine uh, warfare ships, and four amphibious warfare ships. The number is uh, slightly higher now. So, uh, since 2000, <coughs> Russians have uh, pushed forward these two objectives. Uh, that's sort of impossible with the uh, Pacific Fleet. Uh, the first objective is the control of the Northern Sea Route. You can see in the map it stretches all the way from Severomorsk, which is the headquarter of Russia's northern fleet, going all the way down to the Pacific fleet. So obviously the United States, Norway, Finland and a bunch of other countries sharply oppose this because it violates the basic laws of sea. Uh, also the objective number two is defending and uh, exploiting the untapped resources in Kuril Islands and Japan comes to mind. So with just these two objectives, Russians have mobilized a good block of country against themselves. So just briefly, I want to talk about the modernization, Putin's modernization. Uh, so like I, uh, I forgot to mention, so during Yeltsin's era, the uh, naval budget was cut from 33% to 9%. So right now, the military budget, 25% of Russia's military budget is allocated to the Pacific Fleet. You have new uh, and enhanced naval exercises. The last major one was back in 2016 with China in South China Sea. It is expected that this year uh, Russian Pacific Fleet will add 10 warships into its arsenal. By 2025, eight Boray second class submarines, two of them have already joined. And uh, within the next uh, two, three years, uh, six Yasin uh, class submarines will join the Pacific Fleet. And the combination of these two submarines, Yasin and Bore, will create another strong branch of nuclear triad in CF Akhotsk. So you can see that till today, CF Akhotsk remains a primary objective for the Pacific Fleet. Russians are also uh, heavily engaged with regional actors. Uh, the first country that comes to mind is Vietnam. And uh, this country is a prime of importance to Russia because it uh, gives Russia access to South China Sea. Nonetheless, uh, Russians realize that uh, there is a big question mark hanging over the long-term funding of their navy. Uh, most of their uh, shipbuilding facilities are quite inadequate, they miss uh, major deadlines. So in order to cover that gap, uh, Russians have come up with two strategies. First, uh, the anti-hegemonic balancing in Asia-Pacific. So right now, uh, Russian and Chinese uh, interests align in tactical level. Uh, NATO's expansion towards Russia and Obama's pivot to Asia uh, that took place simultaneously have brought these two countries together. This is only a tactical um, cooperation. I do not think that China and Russia will be partners moving forward. There are major differences. And also, uh, Russia adopted the regional hedging policy. Given the anemic state of its uh, relations with European partners, Russians are increasingly moving towards Asia, trying to look uh, for new energy market, uh, finding new economic partners. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, so what can the United States do? So as part of containing China, the Trump administration has formulated the open and free Indo-Pacific strategy, which also for bringing uh, regions' democracies, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States together. 
And uh, the strategy is in its embryonic state. Uh, however, uh, if this materializes, uh, it will effectively impact uh, Russia as well because it technically will become an alternative to the security system arranged by ASEAN, Association of Southeast Nations. Uh, Russia heavily depends on ASEAN and does its best to preserve ASEAN because it's a great market for arms sales and also any regional conflict can potentially hinder Russia's economic aspirations in the region. So this uh, new articulated strategy can, can dramatically contain Russia's aspirations uh, in the region. Secondly, moving forward, Russia will face a great dilemma. Uh, as the uh, containment of China progresses, uh, the, the Chinese will force Russia to take sides, given the growing uh, particip uh, participation and presence of Chinese in Russian energy markets. And this is something Russia really wants to avoid, no long-term commitments in Asia-Pacific. But moving forward, uh, I think the Russians will have to address uh, this major dilemma. So. Uh,